This is an ABC podcast. If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine? Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan. Australia seems to have left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. And welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing, joining you from Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Frank Kelly from RM Breakfast on the Gadigal land of their Aura Nation. And in a moment, we're going to be joined here in the party room by Peter Harcher, a friend of this podcast. He's a political and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and the Melbourne Age. Um, talking to him about a couple of things. This week, the government announced we're all going to be able to get a, a booster vaccine once we're double back. So anyone over the age of 16 will be 18 rather will be eligible for a booster. Great news for everyone who's worried about you know your immune protection decreasing as the months go by. Not such great news perhaps though for people living in the developing world who aren't even close to getting a first dose of a vaccine yet because the vaccine supplies are so low they're just not there. So they can't even get a first dose, let alone a third. It's a big kind of ethical and moral issue for for the world. Mm. Peter's been writing about that. But also the other big international story, of course, is uh, the movements on emissions reductions targets happening before the big UN conference in Glasgow. Big news here this week is Australia's formal adoption of a target of net zero emissions by 2050. The Prime Minister will sign up to that commitment at that UN conference in Glasgow when he arrives in a few days' time. It's a really significant achievement given the resistance, particularly from the coalition, to that target for so many years now, PK, but, um, you know, it's come so late and it's still really come with very little detail. Here's the Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen, who was not all that impressed, really. After weeks of melodrama, after weeks of chaos and dysfunction, after eight years in office, we've got a slideshow and a sideshow. We'll also be announcing detailed plans, more than the steaming pile of nothingness that you saw from the government of the day yesterday, the steaming pile of nothingness that Scott Morrison pretends is a plan. A steaming pile of nothingness. Take that. There's been a lot of talk about it, but uh, one thing was clear, PK, at that press conference when the Prime Minister announced Australia will adopt the 2050 net zero emissions target, um, he was definitely presenting himself as the man with the plan. In fact, I think he said, our plan something like 100 times in that one mm. one press conference. Yeah, saying the word plan seemed to be the sort of uh, main point of that press conference. It did. To sort of embed the word plan in people's heads so that you can make the connection. This government has a plan to fix the emissions. What have they got, um, PK? Yeah, they've got a plan. A plan. Uh, a big plan. Uh, and they wave it around too. I did an interview with Tim Wilson, who's now the, the assistant minister in this area, and he's just waving around pieces of paper of the plan. Like the plan is very important to them. But let's let's just boil it down. I believe that they should be given some credit, some is the really key word here, for committing to net zero emissions by 2050. We should not forget that this was a huge, huge point of, it was was really anticipated that this could actually properly split the coalition for a long time. If you think about, you know, Malcolm Turnbull losing his leadership, I mean, uh, if, he, if he'd even asked about net zero emissions to, to key nationals um, and, and some liberal um, 
MPs as well, they would sort of say, they would rubbish it. So the commitment um, to actually saying that they they believe that that should be what Australia does in that sort of forward trajectory, I think, does matter. But the devil is obviously in the detail and there is an enormous lack of detail here and some heroic, absolutely heroic um, kind of plans that that essentially there's going to be breakthroughs that get us there as we approach 2050, which creates this sort of utopia of net zero emissions. The heavy lifting doesn't even start till much later. Because of that, I think it is a flawed plan that Labor is right to point, you know, to find the holes in um, and to, to the, the gaping holes and the gaping lack of detail, the fact that the government did not give us the modelling, which we'll get into later, and still, I mean, it says they will, but the fact that they couldn't even do that, I think, spoke volumes about the the lack of actual detail in this plan. And so it comes unstuck and it looks like more of a marketing exercise of trying to neutralise the issue of climate change when they know that this is now, like, the debate's shifted, the world's Mm. shifted. This is not the last election or the one before. They know that to be a reality, but they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. Well, yeah, because it comes with an enormous lack of detail, and we'll go into that in more detail with Peter a little later, but also an enormous lack of credibility, and that's the other hurdle that Scott Morrison's got to get, get over. I mean, everyone remembers Scott Morrison was the guy, the treasurer at the time, who brought a lump of coal into the parliament and waved it at Labor and saying, don't be scared of it. It was Scott Morrison and others who, in the last election, accused Labor um, of having ambitious targets that would be economy-wrecking. It was Scott Morrison who rubbished the notion of, you know, big batteries to to power the nation and take over from, you know, coal-fired power stations, for instance, labelling them as being, you know, only as good as a big banana. It was, it was Scott Morrison and others at the last election campaign who rubbished Labor's electric vehicles policy as, you know, uh, weekend killing. It's going to kill the weekend. I mean, these are not very far distant (laughs) in the past. These are recent, this is recent commentary from the uh, coalition and from Scott Morrison. And now Scott Morrison presents himself as the, the leader of Australia that's going to bring Australia forward to the new economy and that he is, you know, not evangelical exactly, but certainly the man with the plan for the new economy. So I think he's got a real credibility hurdle to get over mm-hmm. electorally. And there's still a lot of detail missing, for instance. You know, I, I think this remains a, a real problem for them. Now, Scott Morrison wants to bank this headline. We've, we're the ones who've delivered the 2050 target. We're the only ones who could do that. And he wants to turn the pressure on Labor for not even having a plan. You know, they've got a, mm. they've got a headline, but all they want is to bring in laws and to mandate things, and they don't even have a plan, which is true. But they are the opposition. Yeah. And it takes us back to the point that the plan that Scott Morrison brings the table is really light on detail. In fact, the comment you get from some climate experts is, well, yes, technology, not taxes, that's fine. We, technology will be the way f- forward, but you need policies mm. to deploy the technology. And where are the policies in this well, document? Where's and, the policies for clean, cleaner car engines? Where's the policies for electric vehicle rollout? All that sort of thing. It's not there yet. No, and and the fact that their 2030 emissions reduction target is unchanged speaks volumes about a, a, a lack of commitment to doing the heavy lifting in the interim, which is going to be, I think, deeply problematic. Now, they've given us forward estimates now that they will do better than the 26 to 28% reduction, um, but 
they won't even commit to the projection, <laughs> even though they think they'll commit, they'll get it. They, and they make it out like, oh, the, you know, the Scott Morrison will tell us it's because they took the last one to the election and it's all about what you take to the election. Well, it's also about leading and telling, you know, actually convincing the electorate, which I think is already convinced, to be honest, it won't even be a hard job, that the work has to be done because you believe the climate science, right? You actually believe the projections that if you don't do the work now, you're going to get yourself into trouble. Yeah, and Pika, I, I just get stuck on that. The Prime Minister saying, well, I'm not going to commit to higher ambitions by 2030 because that's not what we promised at the election. Mm. But they also rubbished net zero by 2050 at the election and called these targets economy wrecking, didn't they? So he's committing yes, to that. Yes. Um, you know, is <laughs> the, the the logic seems a little flawed here to me all the way along. Basically, oh. they don't want to get to net zero by 2030 because that would mean, um, you know, really quick momentum on this and it would need to be um, a, a much quicker time frame for introducing, bringing these new technologies on stream, which would mean greater investment and phasing out coal-fired power, mm. electricity in particular, more quickly. And, you know, as the Prime Minister's already, he's given the game away. He says we, the, pro, the progress to net zero by 2050 is not going to be a linear path. No. In other words, a lot of it's going to be back-ended. So there's going to be no change, essentially, yeah. in our and, policies. And- and, this, and let's just contemplate what that means. 2050, it's some time away, my friends. I mean, these guys aren't going to be in power. There's no accountability for any of this. It's it's great to have the world wants to make long-term ambitions and, and that's a great thing. But in terms of political accountability and delivery... It's the, nine elections it's, away, isn't it? Is that yeah, it? that's right. It's now that matters. It's what they're going to do now in the next five to ten years when they can make these these um, decisions that matter. So, yeah, it's 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 obviously... Um, I reckon a hard sell. This idea that it just neutralises the issue politically, I think, is a furphy. I think it keeps. I think, quite frankly, the issue is very much alive now. Labor is is keeping their policy pretty close to their chest. Their argument is they want to wait until the Glasgow climate talks and the outcomes there to kind of reveal their policy. I don't think that's unreasonable. Right, I don't think as the opposition it's unreasonable that they wait for this and then kind of devise a policy on how to how to get to certain goals based on the international ambitions and the lifting we need to do and what has to happen to the economy to transform it. But, and, and this but is important, I do think it weakens their current attack on the government, even though it might be reasonable. It still makes it more difficult because then, you know, it's easy enough to say, well, okay, so what would you do? And that they can't tell us yet. But equally, they've made it quite clear that they want to go further in the interim. Um, and of course, you'd expect that or everything they've ever said would be meaningless. I think a lot of pressure will be on them actually to, to demonstrate that they're not scared of this one, that they're not scared of articulating the case. And if there has been any neutralisation on this issue, then they should have, uh, you know, they should be able to actually do this now because I think there is there is an appetite for genuine change and not just waiting, you know, till we're all dead. I think they, I retired. think Labor is scared though. They are scared of another scare campaign. It really damaged them at the last election, probably cost them the election. Um, they're scared of a couple of things. They're scared of, and they've meandered around a bit during this term of parliament. Joel Fitzgibbon coming out early on and saying, we should absolutely just match the government, do whatever's the government saying on 2030. With If we do anything else, it leaves room for a scare campaign, which is sort of what we're cranking up now. But, you know, the, the, the science is clear and any 
you know, political leader with credibility on this should be just following the science and what the scientists are telling us very firmly uh, from the UN, the IA, the IPCC, um, is that we need to move more quickly now that waiting till 2050 or 2040 is too late. If we want to, um, you know, limit global warming to the one and a half degrees, we need to get cut our emissions by 2030 immediately mm. by 45, 50%, which is where the Business Council of Australia is now at, for heaven's sake. So there's a real dilemma going on, an argument, I think, going on within Labor at the moment. Chris Bowen is signalling he thinks Labor does need to be significantly more ambitious, but they are wary of uh, the, the scare campaign that that allows the coalition if they go too far out in front of them. I think they're also wary mm. of what's going to happen at Glasgow because, remember, Copenhagen didn't go as Kevin Rudd thought it was. He he was kind of left high and dry. The global ambition didn't go where people thought they would be. Basically, China didn't come on board and the US didn't stand up. I think Labor is cautiously waiting for Glasgow because they've still got the failure of Copenhagen in their psyches. This seems like the perfect time to bring in our guest. Let's do it. <laughs> Peter Harcher, political and international editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Welcome to the party room. Thank you, Patricia. Happy to be here. Oh, we're so happy to have you here because, you know, you're kind of on the wonky side of political journalism and this is a, this is a wonky debate, that's for sure, as much as it is political. I know you're saying that in a, a lovey way. I am saying wonky. that in a lovey, like... That's the like, biggest compliment you can get from that woman. <laughs> admiring way, really. Um, Peter, the road to net zero emissions by 2050 has been a long and winding one, to say the least. A few months ago, I just thought the coalition would never get there, given Barnaby Joyce's pronouncements when he took over the leadership of the Nats. But we have this commitment. Climate scientists are reporting it, but they're also torn. They're questioning, really, what this blueprint, this plan that the Prime Minister's waving around is actually worth. What do you think? What's it worth? Well, it depends on whether you want me to be wonky politically or wonky uh in terms of emissions uh, and the future of the Australian economy. Um, because on the political end, it is an achievement uh, if this mm. settles the climate wars between um, the within the coalition and also takes some of the heat out of the contest across the aisle between Labor and uh, the coalition. And I mm -hmm. think it does. I think it does do that. Uh, then that's that's got to be uh, some sort of progress for in the national interest. Uh, it also helps the Libs and the Nats. I mean, that they would go to this effort and uh, you know sort of, sort of contradict everything that they've been telling us for a decade just tells you how much electoral trouble they know they're in. Uh, th this is this is close to a desperate move, uh, and I think it, it does assist them at the margin. Um, so on the political level, it is a bit of an achievement, but on the <laughs> on the climate and uh, economy question. I think it's close to close to nothing. It is close to being a zero, as Labor has kept saying all week. Well, how's this? How's this for how's this for a contrast? On the day on which the government delivered its net uh, zero 2050 pledge and refused to go anywhere on 2030, it was the same day, by sheer coincidence, that Tesla, the electric car manufacturer, uh, surged in value to be to be worth over a trillion US dollars in market capitalization. So that's that's where and that and Tesla's a pure technology electric vehicle play, right? So that that just tells you the potential. The Australian economy is only one point five trillion dollars worth, and here's here's one company in the U.S. Uh, making electric vehicles and got a big order from Hertz Rental Car Company goes to uh, goes over a trillion dollars. 
So that's the sort of potential investment potential that exists. And at the same time, you have this government sending signals to the investment community, essentially, that they're not really serious about it. We were talking earlier, Fran and I, about the fact that the government hasn't updated the interim target as well, Peter. It's still, what, 26 to 28% reductions by 2030. Now, the Prime Minister now says uh, he's not signing onto a more ambitious 2030 target, but he is taking a formal projection of a more ambitious 2030 emissions reduction outcome to Glasgow. I wonder, what does that even mean, a formal projection? But it's not a commitment. So, like... It's funny language where they're using here. It's like it feels a bit tricky. What's going on? It means I'll quit my alcohol addiction. On you know, I'll make a formal pledge that I'm going to give up the give up the grog uh, by by 2030. That's what it means. Mm. Uh, and but but I'm an addict, so you probably can't trust my um, my projection. Look, it's just a it's just a fig leaf um, that allows the government to pretend that it's doing something when it's making no actual effort whatsoever. But effectively, this is a drift, right? That just, that is simply a projection into the future of the, of the current trajectory that the country is already on. And it's in Morrison's own language. I mean, he said it in the House yesterday in question time. He said, we are backing in what the Australian people are doing. In other mm-hmm. words, we, we want you to see that we're supportive, but we're not actually going to put any pressure on you to do anything more. Yeah, we're going to do the same thing. Yeah, we're going to keep doing the same thing. Mm. Um, and, and we're going to, but we're going to put it in a, in a brochure and mm. tell you, uh, right look, it's just enough. It's, it, it's obviously designed uh, to be just enough that when there's an election, the election comes on probably March next year, that uh, voters turn up to the polling booth and, you know, I'm, I'm the Liberal candidate in an inner city uh, seat in Sydney or Melbourne or somewhere and I, and, I, and I say, you know, vote for me, here's my how to vote card. And the voter says, oh, look, I would like to vote Liberal. I'm a traditional Liberal voter, but I'm worried about climate change. And I can now say to that voter, yes, but we've committed to net zero by 2050, uh, the same as Labor, but we've got all these other uh, uh, Liberal policies that you like. That's the conversation this is designed to support, sure. and that's about it. But is that going to be enough? I mean, you give the Tesla example. Yeah, Tesla is already there doing it. The Prime Minister's raving on about how Australia's world-leading, the Australian people are world-leading on solar. Um, but, you know, much of that's been driven by state state policies and, as you say, people's sort of hunger for, for moving into to new technologies. The Prime Minister's plan is banking on new technologies and he's holding up his mobile phone and said, look, you know, 10 years ago we didn't, never thought we'd be having this and look what we've got now. There's no end to the possibility that uh, technology will deliver it. I'm a believer it's going to happen. All of that's fine and probably most people agree technology is, you know, going to take us to places beyond where we can imagine right now when it gets to lowering emissions. But the government has a plan. The plan is, we know, building on technology we don't even know have arrived yet or been developed yet. But there's no modelling. We haven't seen the modelling. Now, it turns out we now know, thanks to Senate estimates, there's actually two sets of modelling which tells us presumably year by year, decade by decade, how the government's going to and how Australia's going to get to net zero emissions and what that means and the cost of that. Um, but we're not seeing it yet. We're not going to see it for a couple of weeks. Why is that? Well, obviously, they're not comfortable uh, coughing it up. And yeah. one, uh, one suspicion would have to be that they don't want to do it during a parliamentary sitting week where it's a lot easier for the opposition uh, to hold it up to some scrutiny and perhaps ridicule. Uh, and they're waiting for a non-sitting week. They don't want anything... 
that's going to uh, put any more pressure on them or make them more subject to ridicule than they already are, either in the parliament during a sitting week or when the prime minister's at the G20 in Glasgow. He's obviously not proud of it. That's why he's done it. But look, any modelling, Fran, really, is just a bunch of guesswork and assumptions. Yeah. Uh, you can No modelling is any better than the assumptions you put into it. So, you know, I, I know it's a great political talking point, uh, but really what tells you all you need to know about it is the government is keeping it secret. Sure, but yeah. you, you're right there. Any modelling is only as good as the assumptions, but um, modelling, presumably, if it's getting us there, would show the trajectory and it presumably would show at what point coal, for instance, burning coal actually starts to diminish. And and perhaps that's why the government doesn't want it there, because it's way out in the out years, do you think? Yeah, well, the, the, the projections um, that we have from the Australian government's uh, Bureau of Agricultural and Resource Economics show us a dwindling in coal uh, exports over the next decade in any case. And all the evidence from everywhere points to the same the same thing. So that's a reality that already exists. I guess Morrison just doesn't want to call more attention to it. But really, I mean, the fact that they aren't prepared to release it tells you that it's junk. Yeah. I mean, the truth is I've, I've spoken to a couple of backbenchers on afternoon briefing and, and one of them said to me the other day, well, we don't want you to find something in the graph and get distracted, i.e. <laughs> find another story. It was really blunt, actually. Like, we don't want... And I thought, well, really, don't That's you? That's great. Uh, yeah. Like, just, yeah, you don't want us to actually look at the detail. Got it. So that we can just listen to yourself. Got it. All right. I'm all over it. Now, in his press conference to announce the net zero by 2050 commitment, Scott Morrison sounded, uh, to me, more patriotic than usual. Let's have a listen. Australians want action on climate change. They're taking action on climate change, but they also want to protect their jobs and their livelihoods. They also want to keep the cost of living down and they also want to protect the Australian way of life, especially in rural and regional areas. He went on and talked about the Australian way. Our plan is the Australian way and it was... Almost nauseating, really, I found. But also, I just want to throw this in, that Warwick McGibbon, who is uh, an economist, he's done a lot of climate modelling in the past, he's former member of the Reserve Bank, he tweeted this week, I really wish the Australian Prime Minister didn't describe the plan for net zero by 2050 as the Australian way. I've already been in two international meetings where the Australian way is now a form of joke. Politicians should never be allowed to debase our national brand. Well, it's it's an old adage that the last resort of the scoundrel is to wrap himself in the flag, uh, is patriotism. So, I mean, he's obviously doing everything he can to package up this thing and make it as palatable and saleable to the electorate as he can, um, and hoping that people are going to take that on face value because anybody who is in any way uh, bothered to read his pamphlet, to take an interest in the, in, the, in the area of climate change, or listen to the alternative voices, whether it's the Liberal Minister for the Environment, Energy, and also the Treasurer in New South Wales, Matt Keane, or whether it's the guys who actually do know about uh, technology, investment, and, and economics, such as Andrew Twiggy Forrest or uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks. These are, these are the, the Australian entrepreneurs who have already committed billions of dollars to renewable energy and creating jobs, and they are the ones saying you need to set uh, ambitious 2030 and 2050 targets to give us investors, the big investors with the billions of dollars that create the real jobs, not mm. just not just the talking points and the pamphlets, the certainty that we need uh, and that all other investors need 
to make long-term investments in renewable energy. I mean, these are the people that Scott Morrison doesn't want you to listen to. Mm. And this whole way that he's really pumped up the nationalism around this and, and branded this approach, which is basically no pain, coal stays, but, you know, we get there eventually, late down the track, that, that it's it quintessentially Australian. <laughs> That's kind of problematic too in the political sense, isn't it? Because, you know, you're assuming Labor will take a different approach. Would that be the un-Australian way? I mean, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Well, it is a bit weird, but, it, you know, there's, there are a few things in this that, that tell you that this whole thing is tinged with political desperation. The fact that they're doing it at all, the fact that they've put themselves through uh, the ringer publicly to get there, um, the fact that, as you say, I mean, why go to such lengths to, you know, wrap yourself in the flag. I mean, it tells you you're not entirely confident about product you're selling. Yeah, and then there's the issue of what the Nationals got, right, and that, you know, that even up to Sunday, we're recording this Thursday, they were kind of tortured about what they were going to do. We know that there were key uh, Nationals, even the leader and the Deputy Prime Minister who didn't want to sign on to net zero emissions by 2050. Ultimately, the party room in principle agreed. And all of a sudden, wham, bam, Keith Pitt makes it back into the Cabinet. That's one of the deals. He was vocally against net zero emissions by 2050 and then he was rewarded with a cabinet um, position uh, and we also don't know the rest of the detail uh, Peter about what the Nationals got what did you make of the way that played out? Um, I thought it was um, an entertaining piece of political theatrics and I thought it was a it was it was it was clever on Morrison's behalf that he uh, be seen to be doing everything he possibly could to bring the Nats along and uh, to try to keep some semblance of unity, and Keith Pitt. Well, he now can't um, he now can't criticise the policy publicly now that he's bound by cabinet solidarity. So it takes one of the critics off the table, as well as giving the Nats um, uh, dangling a bit of a reward for them. But overall, uh, where does it land you? It lands you with uh, a, an agreed coalition policy where you're going to have four or five dissidents who will still feel free. Uh, to backbenchers to criticise the government policy and allow enough product differentiation between the Nats and the Libs uh, to still be, you know, to work to work for the Nats, that they can still be part of the government, keep the keys to the Treasury, uh, keep access to spending and pork barrelling in their electorates, while at the same time differentiating on this. It, I don't think it's a disaster. I think it's probably the best uh, they could have hoped to salvage out of this situation where they're effectively saying everything that we've told you about climate change and the economy for the last decade is a bunch of lies. To be able to salvage this out of that, I think, is probably not a bad political achievement. Yeah, uh, personally, I think the optics of them winning a cabinet spot for doing this backflip is not great. But on the other hand, I always thought that the resources and water minister should be in cabinet. I mean, he only wasn't in cabinet because he was a casualty of the of the Nats leadership thing. But anyway, moving on, Peter, another major issue this week, a big announcement from the government and the Therapeutic Goods Administration, um, approval of booster doses of the COVID-19 vaccine for people of the age of 18. Once you've had your second dose six months after that or beyond, you are now eligible, you will be eligible in about 
10 days' time for a third dose, for a booster dose, which is, you know, um, terrific. It's going to make people feel safer probably, be more protected um, because it does seem from the evidence as it's played out in a country like Israel that a booster shot is needed for efficacy. But there is an ethical question here. I mean, a lot of countries around the world, in our Indo-Pacific region, in Africa, they are way behind. You know, PNG, what is it? A couple of percent of people in PNG are double-dosed, for instance. You know, is it ethical to be rolling out boosters when our neighbours don't even have their first or second shots yet? Well, uh, there's the ethics, and the obvious answer to that is uh, it's not. Uh, but then there's the self-interest as well, and that is that, you know, as countries reconnect to each other uh, more and we reopen uh, flights and all the rest of it and contact resumes, um, you, you, you need you, – it's not enough for you on your island to be protected, to be vaccinated because you're, uh, you're in contact with the rest of the planet. So what that means is that – you use the example, the extreme example, and it's a good one, of Papua New Guinea because it's at its closest point, only four kilometres from Australian territory, where the vaccination rate remains under 2%. And in the low-income countries generally across the world, the vaccination rate is under 5%. Now, and that's most of the world population, um, whereas in the rich world, on average, it's about 50%. Now, these are the figures from the World Health Organization current of, as of last week. But uh, that means that as long as the virus is running rampant in dozens, scores of countries where there is no vaccination effectively, uh, the virus mutates. We know this. This is I, I'm not an epidemiologist, but we know from uh, surveys of epidemiologists that it's a near consensus in that field that the virus will continue uh, to replicate at a high rate and continue to mutate. New variants will emerge. Uh, hence, the the catch cry that's emerged from the World Health Organization, uh, the UN, and even the IMF that no one is safe until everyone is safe. So it's short-sighted and myopic just to think and a little bit um, delusional to think that, you know, we're, we're isolated in, in my house, mm. so therefore I can go out circulate with all the other houses where nobody's vaccinated. Yeah, it's it's not the way this virus has operated so far. It does not like um, adhering to borders, does it? Look, Australia has also decided to stop manufacturing vaccines when its current contract expires. Why have they made that choice when scientists believe this pandemic will continue for years, Peter? Did you think it's the right move? Uh, I think it's I think it's inexplicable. We haven't had a good explanation from the government itself. Is this the AstraZeneca all, all... manufacturer we're talking about? Is this we're going to stop manufacturing yes. AZ? Yeah, right. Yes, the government has said that uh, its supply contracts, when uh, they lapse, won't be renewed, and that's 50 million doses. Uh, there are only 10 countries in the world that manufacture uh, vaccines. We, we happen to be one, thanks to CSL in Melbourne, which makes the uh, AstraZeneca, and we're shutting it down. I just think it, it's just extremely short-sighted. The stuff isn't expensive. AstraZeneca makes its vaccine available at cost. As you know, there's no profit in it for AstraZeneca. Um, and yet here we are, Australia has promised 60 million doses of vaccines to countries in the Pacific and Southeast Asia, so our immediate region, of which, according to Oxfam, only 8% have been delivered so far. Um, we keep on making these promises and pledges. The region is really struggling and has a poor vaccination rate. And yet the Australian government is ceasing production mm. of the only Indigenous manufacturer that we have is just baffling. Uh, it's just mind-boggling. 
Um, and so the head of COVAX, who's the Australian, the former Health Department Secretary, Jane Halton, uh, she's co-chair of uh, the body that created COVAX, which is the international buying uh, buying and distribution club for vaccines that more than 100, 130 countries have signed up to, both poor and, and rich, including ours. Uh, Jane Halton says that countries need to increase their manufacture and supply at the time when the Australian government is shutting shutting down its manufacture and supply. And she also says that countries uh, need to be very sparing in their use of booster shots while most of the planet has yet to be vaccinated. Uh, and, she, you know, she, her point, Jane Halton's point, is that it's fine to vaccinate the most exposed and the most vulnerable people in Australia or other wealthy countries that can do the booster. That's, that's, that's cool, she says. But she then goes on to plead and say, uh, please don't hand out to everybody, to the general population, unless there's a clear scientific argument in favour, because the priority has to be distributing vaccines to the countries that have really struggled to get vaccination. Once again, whichever way you look at it, the Australian government just seems to be uh, talking one story about generous donations. And we saw the, the Prime Minister yesterday talking to the leaders of the ASEAN group, talking up Australia's generous doses. And yet with 8% only donated so far and the federal government announcing the end of manufacture of AstraZeneca, it seems like a bizarre disjunction. I think you put it perfectly in your op-ed, Peter, when you called it a tale of two worlds. On that note, Peter Harcher, it's always great to have you, Super Wonk, on the party room. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, you make me feel extra wonky. Thank you, Fran. <laughs> See you, Peter. See ya. Bye, bye Patricia. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing and that means it's time for question time. This week's question comes from Catherine who writes, I read in the Sydney Morning Herald that the ALP has increased its primary vote from 31 to 34%, yet only 26% prefer Anthony Albanese as the Prime Minister. Why is there this difference? Are there ALP supporters who prefer Scott Morrison as Prime Minister? Hmm, Catherine, I'm not sure I know the answer to that. I mean, mm. Anthony Albanese has always, is, I think I'm right in saying, for most of this term anyway, trailed Scott Morrison significantly as preferred PM. Mm. It's not the only time this has happened. I don't, I don't think Tony Abbott was preferred PM in the election where no. he beat uh, Labor and certainly Paul Keating, I remember back in 1996, 1993, sorry, when he won was not preferred Prime Minister for most of that time. So it, it's not unusual that there's a disconnect, um, but no. I don't think it means that they're necessarily preferring Scott Morrison over no. Anthony Albanese. They're just not preferring Anthony Albanese. Maybe they've got someone else in mind. Yeah, and they're backing the Labor brand, right? And, and the brand matters, the political party's brand, rather than individually when you ask the question, they're making it clear that, that, you know, they're not as big a fan of the individual leading the party. Uh, and that's why, uh, and now they've changed the rules, there's always been these debates about changing the leader because when you look at those numbers, uh, political parties would say, hey, all right, you mm. know, we've increased our primary vote, we're in the hunt, we could do this, but our leader is a, is a drag potentially and that's when, you know, the killing seasons happen, isn't it, Frank? It and now is. it's harder and when I think Anthony Albanese is certainly going to take them to the election now. Um, 
and but but in the old days <laughs> when you could knife a leader, I'm not. I'm really not certain he would have survived. No, that's right. And just to remind people that uh, Kevin Rudd, um, when he came back to the prime ministership after getting rid of Julia Gillard, who'd earlier got rid of him, um, they changed the rules in Labor. So now there has to be a vote of not just the caucus but also of the party membership to change the leader. And Scott Morrison too has changed rules on the Liberal side of things. So it's a lot harder for that last minute panic basically, mm. um, by a party room to go, oh, my God, the, it's, it's not, we're never going to win with this guy. Let's change it. That's a lot harder to do. Yeah, and guy being the perfect word. Um, send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions to The Party Room at abc.net.au. And you can follow us on the ABC Listen app, of course, or your favourite podcast app. That's it for The Party Room this week. See you next week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.